Well, kia ora everyone and welcome to New Zealand Over the Horizon. I'm Bernard Hickey with the Kaka and uh, on the line here on Clubhouse we have Peter Bale. G'day Peter. Hi Bernard, how are you doing? You've got a ridiculous bird on your shoulder there? Yes, in fact, several birds. You can hear them there twerping. Yes, I can. Quir- <laughs> now I'd like to say they're actually on my shoulder but no, I have just carefully lifted these sounds from the internet rights free sounds and I just love a good kaka in the background so I thought I'd throw that in but I will I, dial it down now because it's pretty irritating I think pretty we quickly do a, a live broadcast from the from Zealandia at some point with real kaka That's a great idea. That is a really mm, good sure idea. I'm sure they'd go for it perhaps for the launch of the kaka. Yes, and we would um, do some feeding of the kaka which I'm sure would be, <laughs> be off the agenda. Yes. Hey, it's great to see you again, Peter. Well, talk to you again, uh, because the last couple of weeks have been very popular. Lots of downloads are from the Kaka and plenty of people um, signing up for it. But it's been a big week in the world of politics and economics. Tell me about what you were uh, writing about for the spin-offs email well, I that you, you do weekly. about your, your blog, your, your, your own podcast on the spin-off force, since you, you've been doing, ah, you, know, yeah. you seem particularly pleased with it this week. Yes, I, I was. I did a big piece on the Climate Commission's report. Mm. I have three or four themes that I follow. Housing affordability is one of them. Yeah. Uh, the climate change challenge, the problems in our relations with China and other places and the future of tech. So climate change, a big one. We had the Climate Change Commission's recommendations to the government about how much it needs to cut carbon emissions. And so I had a chat with some people who look at the business side of it, but also essentially challenging the commission on its pretty weak and flimsy report in terms of its recommendations for hard political action. There's There's a real aim to, you know, not scare the horses and to say this yeah. is going to be, we can just do this by buying an electric car, that'll be fine. Actually, mm-hmm. you need to do a lot more than that. But so, even, even with what they said, there was an awful lot of, so let, I mean, what the, the essence of what they said was that New Zealand has to get rid of, I think, 13 or 14% of its uh, cattle unless some, unless or livestock, unless some technology means is found to reduce their, their, their output of, of carbon. And then there was this huge transport aspect and a certain amount of, of stuff about power generation, including the government's plan to do stored water mm. power. But Bernard, I just wonder, is, is it, you know, isn't this just the world government telling us, telling us what to do when in fact you know, New Zealand's got prevailing westerly winds, you know, five million people, it really doesn't matter what we do or are we just doing it for global solidarity? Yeah, I mean, it'd be quite nice to hope that nobody notices and we could just carry on and let everyone mm. else do the work. The trouble is, if we want to export stuff, it won't be long before the European Union, for example, is taxing people based on uh, the carbon emissions embedded in their products that are about to be sold in supermarkets across Europe or the UK. We will, no doubt, in the long run, be forced to buy electric cars because those would be the only ones that will be made. Mm. And, mm. and also, a lot of the businesses in New Zealand which are connected internationally will have to report to global HQs, which are right now under siege from activists, investors, regulators, bankers, insurers, who are all telling them, hey, there is this thing called climate change. Have you thought about the assets you're buying, the assets you own, how much they're worth, will, whether they'll be worth anything, whether you'll be forced to buy carbon credits in 15 years? And anyone who's 
thinks they're part of the global economy and that they want to sell their product or find someone to work for them or try and get an investor to pay for them or to uh, invest in them will struggle. And uh, we mm. can't really cut ourselves off from the rest of the world. And, no, no. Uh, but, and I did, I did not, so as we both know, New Zealand has an obsession with four-wheel drive and four-cab, four-door utility vehicles. I noticed last week that Ford introduced the electric version of the F-150 in the US. So I guess we'll see a few of those turn up here but you know this is this is such a small economy you know five million people very dependent on cars you know we've seen a lot of resentment about various government proposals on even on bicycles you know it's just what are the, what are, what's the government going to do to get people really really fired up about this and actually engage with it in a positive way yeah that's the real uh, problem for the government because the median voters those double cab ute driving suburban house owning uh, people are the ones that the prime minister needs to convince to vote for her in 2023 and that's about as far ahead as she's looking really and uh, you're right it's turning into a culture war of sorts where for example, on this weekend, there's going to be someone trying to organise a protest to uh, essentially drive over cycle lanes in Auckland, potentially, you know, harming people. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's quite amusing because, of course, it's a response to the, to the yes. rather lame uh, attempt by the police to not really stop people um, riding bicycles over the Harbour Bridge the other day, which was, you know, they were clearly going to do. And I, I was there watching it. I didn't do it myself, but I watched all these, you know, what, what Mike Hosking would call latte-sipping people from Grey Lynn, you know, riding their bicycles across the Harbour Bridge. I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's a sort of negative reaction to that, isn't it? Yeah, and his, his partner, Kate Hawksby, is apparently toying with the idea of running for mayor on this very platform of, you know, the woke latte-sipping Grey Lynn types on, with their mm. Lycra and electric cars. Can we insult them anymore? I just want to insult them because right <laughs> right. I am one, of course. So, yeah, yeah. You know, that's a bit ridiculous. Uh, no, I mean, yeah. yeah, and how is your electric sc- scooter, Peter? No, my, well, your electric scooter is right. very well. It's actually. fantastic. Yes, you. it's going, You've it's never had so much fun. And I, I haven't I, either. I, it's great. Yeah, no, no, it's really good. Thank you. And what, I think you're right, though. This is going to be one of those generational clashes. And it'll take a long time to convince people tempt people, force people to do the right thing. I'm curious, actually, from your experience in London, where you've been living for a couple of decades. Yeah. yeah. Where, and actually, I was living also in London in that period of the early 2000s, when London imposed essentially a ring of steel around the centre mm. of mm. town and forced people to pay every time they drove drove under a, a camera. A gantry just out of town, yeah. 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 Really and close to town, in fact. How, yeah. did, how did Londoners, because they seem to get it now, they seem quite keen on the idea of, you know, cycling. Yeah. Yeah, one of the differences, of course, it has excellent public transport. You know, the, the tube is the tube. Had, well, up until COVID, the tube had never been used by so many people. It was very effective. There were new branches. The Elizabeth Line was being introduced, which was a new, you know, cross cross city rail line that connected with everything. It was starting to get really good as far as public transport goes. So, the I think it's twelve pounds now charged for the congestion, for the congestion charge. You know, very few people, very few ordinary citizens will take this take their cars into town unless they absolutely have to but there are other really good means of getting into town what also happened was i think there was something like a a total 25 percent fall in traffic numbers in town but that was very quickly replaced by delivery vans and delivery vans and uber type vehicles have rather recongested the city in a remarkable fashion so this you know while while it worked brilliantly before those two things took off 
when they took off around about the same time, they've actually eliminated much of the much of the gain that was there. But of course, you know, London is still extremely quiet at the moment. What, one thing I do think is true about all this bicycle business, and I have arguments with people in my family about this who think it's all ridiculous what New Zealand is doing with too many bike runs. It is absolutely the case, and I know this from, from London and several other cities, that once it is perceived to be safer to ride a bicycle in town or to ride a bicycle on a regular journey, it happens. You know, it may not be immediate, but it takes, you know, the provision of decent cycle paths really does have an extraordinary effect on people's willingness to do it. You do you need know, leadership, road. though, and Sorry. and yeah. the one good thing about Boris Johnson is that he's a mad cyclist, and so he can't really take the whole, you know, culture wars, anti-woke, I'm against cyclists thing too far. He can hate Europe, That's right. That's he can't right. really well, hate, it, hate cyclists. It isn't, it isn't a culture war in the, you know, in the UK, really, in that, in that way, in the same way. You know, he, he did do a good job of the bicycle, of the bicycle paths, of course, you know they've they got beyond uh, what I've seen in, in Auckland is that essentially a bicycle a bicycle path is frequently just a piece of paint on the road, and it may end you know at an intersection and then there'll be another piece of paint on the other side. It really you know they they really need proper barriers you know in many cases they really need you know proper provision to for people to feel genuinely safe. They really need to be thought through. Yeah, no, it's a it's a big topic. I did enjoy doing the podcast and when the facts change, I encourage you all to subscribe. And I'd also encourage you all to subscribe to Peter's World Bulletin email oh, yeah, on the spin-off, which is fantastic mm. because what I love about it, Peter, is you take me to places and to times that uh, are so far away from what I'm doing right now. It's like a holiday, and because we can't take holidays well, anymore. Yeah. And I really enjoyed your your little diversion into the Spanish Civil War. Tell us about that. Well, I'll do the Spanish Civil War. It was just I, occasionally in this thing I put in obituaries. I think we're in a sort of a bit of a golden age of some some good obituaries being written around the place, particularly in the Economist. Actually, there's a, there's a woman at the Economist who really gets quite magical people and not always incredibly prominent people that she covers. And a, a, a guy this week died this week, Josip Almudeva, Almudeva, sorry, Josip Almudeva, who was the last living member of the Spanish International Brigades. Now, what, what I thought, one, one other thing I thought about with this and a couple of other stories I've pulled out, Bernard, is anybody under 30 probably doesn't know about the war in Yugoslavia. They may well never have heard or might have just heard whispers of, of the Spanish Civil War, which was in 19, started in 1937 and was really the precursor to the Second World War. It, it played out the preparation for weapons, the preparation for fighting styles and alliances that we then saw spread across Europe in, in World War II. And the, the international brigades was a way for the anti-fascist groups, not necessarily communists, not necessarily anarchists, although there were those people in there, but particularly you know, left-wing, if you like, sympathisers to come from all over the world, from the United States, even from New Zealand. And I put some links in there to mm. historic collections of, of New Zealanders who went over there to Spain to fight on the side of the Spanish Republic. Now, the Spanish Republic was the government one could argue it was left-wing, but it was a democratically elected government, which was overthrown by Francisco Franco and the in a, in a coup, military coup with the Spanish army. And of course, Franco had the backing of Hitler and Mussolini. So that's where you got this this fascist alliance, which essentially it was all a test run for 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 uh, World War Two. And if you recall, the Nazis tried out the Blitzkrieg approach. The the aerial bombardment and the extreme aerial bombardment, particularly of civilian areas, um, which is best represented in Picasso's work, Guernica, 
which um, everybody or many people will know, but if you don't know, look it up. It's one of the most moving, moving pictures ever. And so it was very interesting to think about this man, this man having having just died, having been in that, in that international brigade. He was born in France, but was a sort of Franco-Spanish citizen, and went into the international brigades as a as a as a Spaniard. And he would still have the socialist flag of Spain wrapped around him, even at, even at this late age. What I loved about that story was how mm. earnest and convinced and dedicated he was, because that conflict really was the last almost innocent age where you could be a pro-communist and you could be anti-fascist or vice versa, I suppose, yes. uh, just just before this, the Second World War, when, you know, through the Second World War and after the Second World War, it became fairly clear <laughs> that they were both incredibly nasty dictatorships, that communism and fascism were just sort of two sides of the same coin. Mm. And that Orwell, I mean, the, the reason, one of the reasons I love this period of history is because George Orwell really got his cut his got his chops, if you like. Yes, he you did. Know, really learned yeah, he how was, to. He, he fought on the Republican side. I, I looked up, and he he wasn't actually in the international brigades, although he's often described as being there. But absolutely, his his book about Catalonia is extraordinary. I mean, I think you're right that this was a time of great innocence. You had Ernest Hemingway, Hemingway there as well. The great photographer Robert Capa, you know, took the really the most important pictures we, that have been handed down to us really from that period. And it was a genuine ideological battle between the forces of, let's say, totalitarianism and the forces of, of democracy and, and human rights. Of course, the Republican side on the Civil War got into awful straits, partly because through resources and the lack of resources, they ultimately aligned with Stalin. And he was no great partner. You know, the, the, uh, the, the, it's now evident from the archives that came out when the, when the Russian, when the Soviet Union collapsed, that the Russians really messed with, or the Soviet Union really messed with the Republican side, you know, sent in NKVD secret agents and so on to foment crises on the Republican side. They took all of the Spanish gold reserves and took them to Moscow, where they effectively swapped for some pretty crappy weaponry <laughs> from the <laughs> Soviet Union, and Stalin kept it. Wow. So, I had you know, no idea. Of, That's great, yeah. Yeah, no. There's some. If you, yeah, you know, we can. If anybody would like to pull up a chair and a and a glass, a glass of wine, we can talk about the Spanish Civil War at some length, or I can anyway. Yes, and of course you live in or quite close. I do partly. I do live in Spain part of yeah. the time. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and it's and it's one of the things that you know the Spanish Civil War. We may think it's 80, 80 years eighty years ago, eighty ninety years ago, but the effects of it are still very very profound. They're profound in the Spanish Constitution, and they poked their noses up, of course, with the attempt by Catalonia to, to gain independence recently. And I guess in Spain still, it's a sensitive issue. It's like, don't mention the war. It, it is a bit like that. And the other one, of course, that I mentioned in my, in my work this week and my review for the spin-off this week was the uh, upholding of a conviction of um, Ratko Mladic, the Bosnian Serb general who was found guilty of war crimes and genocide. And he had appealed against one of the genocide convictions at the at the UN tribunal in The Hague and was 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 his conviction was was upheld. And one of the things that I think about that with Bernard is, is again that young people don't necessarily know about what went on with the fall of Yugoslavia. And these words like genocide, genocide, fascism, ethnic cleansing, we can we can throw them around a bit, but they really mean something when you've seen in our you know in our lifetime what can happen when these places collapse and when you know, essentially we're talking about fascism again that was representing the Serbian state, which is the orthodox Christian Slavic part of Yugoslavia. And his whole idea, along with, along with the others, was to clear out the Muslims from 
Bosnia. And so that's why it was genocide. And I, and I can just tell you one, one thing that I found in 1985 when I was covering it was being in Belgrade during the time of the, of the I'm sorry, 1995, of, of the time of the Srebrenica massacre. We knew that troops were being moved in. We knew that buses were being sent to the area in order to move the young Muslim men and, men and boys out of town to killing fields. And you just sort of knew that something really terrible was going on, but you had no real visibility. And it was, I've never felt more helpless as a reporter in a sense than knowing that just across the border there was something really bad going on that you could kind of sense in your bones. But of course it wasn't until quite a lot later that we realised that something like 8,000 Muslim men and boys had been murdered in, the, in a few days there. An awful event in the heart of Europe. Do, do you think uh, in retrospect that lessons were learned and systems put in place so it couldn't happen again? No. No, no, no. I think it, I, I, well. I, I think that the you know the sanctions on Serbia were very effective. The Western attacks on on Serbia were very effective, which were were pretty much you know initiated and upheld by Tony Blair and and Bill Clinton. I think the lessons that uh, Vladimir Putin learned though were very different, which is that he's not going to stand for that kind of intrusion, particularly on a Slavic country, and he knows that there is a less interventionist approach from those Western leaders than there was at that time which is why he was able to go into Crimea in the Ukraine without uh, and take it over with, with almost no expectation that he would be pushed out again. Speaking of Vladimir Putin, he's going to be meeting up with Joe Biden next week in Vienna. And in the meantime, Biden's over in Cornwall, hopefully sunny there, talking to Boris Johnson and the rest of the G7. What do you think we should be watching out for there? With, with Biden and Putin, I th- well, so... I, I, I have to admit that I am amongst those who wonder just how old Biden really is uh, <laughs> and whether he is entirely up for all of this. But anyway, he is, a, he is of course, as, as Boris Johnson said today, a, um, a, a breath of fresh air. But I think Putin will have read him. Putin will know about him. Putin will know everything. And of course, Biden recently called Vladimir Putin a killer. He probably won't repeat that. But you know, we've got to remember, Putin is a former spy. You know, a Russian journalist once described him to me as the most cynical man in the world. He can sit there and take it from Biden, but and Biden will talk to him about Alexei Navalny. He'll talk to him about, you know, the the attempts by by Belarus to suppress uh, neighbouring Belarus to su- suppress dissent. He'll talk about Russian cybercrime gangs and the war in eastern Ukraine. But I think we can expect essentially cynical nods from Putin and then him to just go ahead and do what he wants to do anyway. Yeah. And this week, Biden has been pushing hard on the whole COVID escape theory, the smoking gun that has been talked about. This is going to bubble away because it looks like the EU are also going to jump on this one and try and get an investigation. Tell us about what you're seeing on the, the lab escape theory at the moment. Yeah, well, I was, re- I was really struck by, by two things of this. I mean, clearly he is, I mean, it, this to me fits with a sort of general blame China strategy. I mean, Trump put out an absolutely ridiculous statement this week suggesting that China should be fined $10, 10, $10 trillion <laughs> for, for having created or let COVID out of, out of a lab in, in Wuhan. You know, I, th- I think Biden is trying to develop a kind of structural strategic alliance against China or to head off China, and it's not dissimilar to some of the tactics that Trump deployed. I, I am not convinced that some kind of Western alliance against China is the way to go. I, I'm 
can't help but feeling that China isn't going anywhere and that engagement is a better strategy, even as difficult it is to, as it is to engage with the Chinese Communist Party. But on the, on the lab theory, it was very interesting this week, there's a Nobel Prize winning biologist, David Baltimore, who looked at the genetic code of the virus and said that it was a, quote, smoking gun, close quote, toward having a, main, a man-made origin. Now, today, or this, this week rather, he's pulled back from that and said that he was really speaking too strongly to describe it as a, as a smoking gun, that while the lab theory is still, still a possibility, it could also be, be natural. So I, I just have a feeling that even the request that Biden has put out for the security services to give him a clear answer on this is not going to be clear. It'll come back with, with a set of probabilities. But which does not mean that we don't need a clear and much more transparent inquiry in Wuhan and, and elsewhere as to where it could have come from. Yeah, I'm afraid I'm a bit more hawkish on this after um, mm, two, or three, two or three years trying to publicise the background of a National List MP who it turned out had trained spies in China 20 years ago. Yes. Meanwhile, we are hearing some amazing things about Rupert Murdoch, everyone's favourite favorite villain or hero, maybe, because yeah. he, he could be having a crack at these big tech companies. Yeah, well, he does. I mean, you know, I often talk about media and we often talk about the big tech companies. And of course, Rupert is incredibly good at talking his own book. And Rupert and his chief executive of News Corporation, Robert Thompson, are absolutely adamant to stake out the ground against Google and Facebook. You know, they will deal with them but they are adamant that they've destroyed their business and that they're going to try to limit their scope. So there's a very good story in Axios, the American uh, news service today, so, saying that the two Murdoch companies, Fox and, and News Corporation, have spent a lot on lobbying, particularly Republicans this year, to get them to move ahead with anti-monopoly, antitrust regulations against big, big tech. Now, this reminds me of a, of a time when I took Robert Thompson, who's now the chief executive of News Corp, to Google at Mountain View. And I was the kind of connection because I was very close to the Google people and I was working at News Corp at that time. And we had a fantastic meeting with some lovely people from Google, including Marissa Mayer, who went on to be CEO at Yahoo. And afterwards, Robert turned to me and said, they're greedy, greedy geeks and smiling assassins. <laughs> and that's, that, I think, is his underlying attitude that they are, you know, forces to be reckoned with and, and, and no 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 doubt that they respect them but also at, at that same well around that same time actually Murdoch said to me about about the Google guys that they have unlimited capital and unlimited ambition and that's a really interesting kind of business way to see what they've since gone on to create yeah, I must say, I'm, I'm in, the, in the camp that says they need to be regulated I know you are. to within an inch of their and lives. And I'm and sort I'm of pleased the, that Rupert's on my side on this yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, and I'm in the camp which says that the media industry are, bunch, are just a bunch of rentiers who, who <laughs> have had advertising taken away by a better product. But um, that isn't, doesn't make me terribly popular everywhere. No, that's all right. And probably a good time to open it up to our Jonathan. audience. Jonathan, how are you? Let's see if I can make sure I've got Jonathan here. As a speaker? Yeah, inviting. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you're in there. Is that right? Uh, and I've taken uh, Jonathan's advice um, too. Cool. Thank you. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, guys. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. I'm good, thanks. I'm just listening in and enjoying the conversations. Don't have too what, much what, to add. What, what, what's on your mind today? The mission of trying to buy a house in New Zealand. Um, yes. That is always on my mind. And very frustrating. Yeah, seeing house prices, like i got a friend in Wellington who's also a regular listener, and he's putting an offer today on a house for $300,000 more than it was estimated to be worth uh, a year ago. 
which just mm. kind of blows our minds. So. Excellent. Well, that's done well that's for the owners of that. Good on them. Ye- yes. <laughs> yeah, sadly, it's going to get harder, Jonathan. Just in the last week, we've got fresh data showing uh, that the house prices have continued rising after that March 23 announcement from the government. Also, astonishingly last night, even though we had higher than expected inflation figures, market interest rates fell. And now it's pretty clear that investors think that central banks will, regardless of what happens with inflation, keep pumping money into the hands of asset owners. And this is not financial advice. That's my disclaimer for anyone from the FMA who might be listening in. But whenever I speak to someone who is thinking about buying a house or uh, can understand the issues, I say sometimes the right thing to do is to panic and that do whatever you can, you know, beg your grandmother, buy lotto tickets, whatever it is, get into housing as fast and as often and as heavily as you can because sadly the central banks and, and governments have put a big floor under those asset prices and are just pouring fuel on the fire and no one's stopping them uh, because that's all they know what how to how to, all they know what to do and that's going to continue as far as I can see. Bernard, this, I mean, we just uh, it doesn't look like consumer prices rose five percent in the US, so isn't there going to be a risk of inflation and interest rates going up and therefore mortgages becoming even you know even more difficult to afford you know if interest rates go up? Yeah, but you never fight the Fed, and the Fed is saying mm-hmm. we think it's temporary, and if you try and push up wholesale interest rates, we'll just create a lot of money and buy those bonds off you and you'll miss out on the next leg of the rally. So last mm-hmm. night the US stock market had a record high after those surprisingly, supposedly dangerous inflation figures and that's that's the thing. When you've The other reason it's, I think we're going to see a lot more of these low interest rates and money printing is that for a government like America, which does really have way too much debt, unlike the New Zealand government, which doesn't, the American government probably does. And the only way that big governments like America have gotten out of debt, public debt in the long run, debt issued in their own currency, is Mm. to essentially print their way to freedom and to effectively devalue the currency. So by the time they have to repay the the bonds, it's not worth that much. So that's that's how this is travelling at the moment. And it's the wrong thing to do, and you can come up with lots of reasons to say the markets should, should survive here. The problem is that there is a structural headwind for inflation globally, and we have central banks that have been given unlimited power to keep inflation low and have the power to print money and are doing it hand over fist and confirmed last night, particularly the European Central Bank, that they would continue to do it. So my not financial advice to everyone is get a house as fast as you can because or access to some other assets if it's not yeah. remotely possible. Yeah, get somebody else's house. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, so that's the that's the guts of it. Hey, we're close to the thirty minute mark, Peter. That was that was fun. Is there anything else that you wanted to to well, we uh, jump into? A little bit. Yeah, yeah. We were going to talk. Well, we did talk about Boris. We took North, so Northern Ireland has been an interesting issue because Biden has raised that, and certainly they they raised it diplomatically with Boris ahead of time. The UK is in the weirdest situation of having made this agreement with the European Union and, and is now trying to break it. You know, a matter of months later on Brexit and. You know, at stake is the Good Friday Agreement, and and Biden, who like a lot of Americans plays up his Irish heritage, is deeply concerned about that. So, you know, I, I think underneath all of the absolutely ridiculous smiling pictures and thumbs up, and the fact that Biden gave Boris a new bicycle and all this other crap, you know, I think there's actually much more tension underlying that than than meets the eye. 
Yeah, and also it turns out the British, who initially thought they would love this global tax deal, now would quite like to exempt London <laughs> from this global yeah. tax deal. Yeah, I think people forgot that it would also in- incorporate, you know, British BP, BP, Shell, HSBC, and many others. It's a very interesting. It's a very interesting dilemma. I mean, I think some of the some of the stuff that I've seen has suggested that the United States will inevitably be the biggest beneficiary of this because the, you know the, the funds would, can be expatriated back to the states and taxed there. So it, it may be one of those. It's more complicated than it looks, and be careful what you wish for. I think. And particularly when you've got the big tech companies able to play companies off against each other. That's right. And Bernard, we we were also talking about the ProPublica had a rather extraordinary story this week where they got the had leaked to them, which is a huge controversy on itself. The tax details over many years or several years of I think the top 25 richest people uh, in the United States. Unfortunately, not including Donald Trump, because as we know, he's nowhere near the the top rich club. But it had you know Elon Musk, George Soros, Jeff Bezos, and Warren Warren Buffett in it. What do you think about that? I, I, I'm actually a little bit questioning of the way they've approached it. Yes, I, I, I quite like that they got leaked that data and it, it really does show how the, the rich, it's different for the rich when it comes to paying taxes. Mm-hmm. And the bigger, biggest problem we have now is that that inequality is getting wider and more and more of the wealth is being stocked and effectively stashed in bank accounts, not actually doing much that's productive, driving us closer to the ultimate revolution. But, and the only way to know this is to have it exposed. Remember, these are uh, tech, tech titans who know everything about us. It'd be quite nice to know everything about And that's where we ended it for the day, part because my phone's battery ran out of power. Thank you very much to everyone involved, in particular Peter Bale, uh, who is with us every Friday afternoon three o'clock on Clubhouse, so come and join us, where we talk about the news from over the horizon on the Kaka. Thank you very much.